I think we can get started. So, when we were here on last Friday, this is what we got up to. And we were talking about diseases that elucidated immunoglobulin structure. And we were talking about tumors and mitable myeloma and Benz-Jones proteins. And we're talking about heavy chain diseases. And what we said was that investigators started to line up immunoglobulin molecules and they started sequencing. And when they started sequencing, that's when they found the variable region and the constant region, because all those amino acids are different in the variable region, and all those amino acids aren't so different in the constant region. And then the next thing they started to do is they started to use enzymes. So they used the enzyme papain, and they found three polypeptides. And they used the enzyme pepsin, and they found different polypeptides. And then they used the chemicals in terms of breaking the components apart. They used beta-mecaptoethanol all reducing components. All right, so a picture is worth a thousand words. So what did they get? So this is what they did. This is basically the step for the chemical and the enzymatic treatment of the immunoglobulin molecule. So here's our standard immunoglobulin molecule with the heavy chain, the disulfide bonds holding together the light chains and the heavy chains together. If we break with papain, what we're going to do is the papain is going to recognize conserved amino acid sequences. We're going to get this FAB re or these two FAB regions and this FC region. So you can see the papain is going to basically chew apart up here. So these disulfide bonds holds the, the constant regions together, and then the FAB regions are going to be liberated. If we do the same thing instead of with papain, we do with pepsin now. Pepsin is going to have a different specificity where it's going to be able to uh, proteolize the amino acids and break apart the immunoglobulin molecule. So we get something that looks like an FAB fragment, but it's actually two FAB fragments. So we still have to give it a different name, right? This is all nomenclature. Because if I'm telling you I'm taking my immunoglobulin molecule and I'm breaking it apart and I have these, right now we have to keep track of all the pieces that are being generated. Here's the FAB prime two. And you can see now that pepsin's going to attack here below these disulfide bonds and it's going to chew up the FC portion because there are amino acids in here that it recognizes and it starts digesting this part of the peptide. So these are just pieces of a fragment. So the major piece here are the FAB prime two and beta-mecaptoethanol. Again, we're reducing these disulfide bonds. We're breaking apart the heavy chain from the light chain and the light chain and the heavy chain from the heavy chain. And that's how we found the heavy chain and the light chain. All right? So, we're going to do all these different things. We will have done these experiments with the enzymes. So what does this really tell us about the function of the immunoglobulin molecule? Right, so what we're going to do is we're going to take this molecule, the whole molecule, and we're going to compare it in different biological assays to all these different pieces. Okay? And what we're going to come up with is we're going to come up with some different biological functions for all of these different sort of pieces that were generated and that we were able to see. So, we're going to come up with the antigen combining site. This is where the antigen meets the antibody. This is the region of the immunoglobulin molecule that's going to react with the epitope. 
And this is basically the variable regions of both the heavy chain and the light chain. Again, remember with all these cartoons that I've been drawing and these cartoons you've been seeing, if this is our stereotypical bacteria, right? I always make the immunoglobulin molecule look like that when it binds. So there's the FAB region, right? Those are basically the variable regions of the heavy chain and the light chain, right? So it's called FAB. It means fragment of antibody binding, right? That's the fragment that binds, right? And it's associated with that part of the antibody molecule. The next part is we have the FC part, and the FC part is called, is is known because it's called the fragment crystallizable. Right? This is just a historical reference. Back in the 1930s and the 1940s, the way to be able to discern protein structure was to grow crystals of the protein and then expose those crystals to x-rays and, and the diffraction pattern that the protein made with those x-rays right, was used to be able to determine protein structure. I mean, not proteins, yes, the structure, what the protein looked like. Nowadays, right, it's really straightforward. We get a protein sequence, we put it into our computers, the computers will build what the protein looks like. But back then, using these fragments, of, well, using these crystals was the way to be able to get protein structure. So when you broke this apart, so you could probably crystallize the entire immunoglobulin molecule. It was probably a pain to do because it was so big and it was so giant. But the FAB fragments didn't crystallize very readily, but the FC portion did crystallize readily. Right? So this was just a way to discern uh, a different name to it. And the FC portion is what's going to give the biological effector functions to the immunoglobulin molecule. Okay? And these are the constant regions of the heavy chain. So what this means is, once the antibody binds to this bacteria, it starts to coat the bacteria, right? So now this antibody molecule is going to be used sort of like a neon sign, right? Antibody has recognized this as being a foreign invader. It starts to coat the bacteria, and it's now shouting out to the immune system, hey, fellas, it's over here. Right? You've got to destroy this. Right? So how is that going to happen? Clearly we'll talk about it for the rest of the semester, but right, now we're going to have cells of the immune system, and they're going to have receptors on their cell surface that are going to be able to recognize the FC portion of that molecule. Right? So now we've just united right, the humoral or the secreted part of the immune system with now the cellular part of the immune system. Now, you might, right, you might already know, right, that B cells make antibodies, and we'll talk about that, and this B cell is going to start secreting immunoglobulin molecules. So you could argue, yeah, but the cellular immune portion is already activated. It's already online. It's already part of the, part of the program here. And yes, that's true, but once the antibody molecule binds, now the cells of the immune system can come in and start to act on and destroying the bacteria or the, the invader, the pathogen as well. Right? And that's what the FC portion, those are the biological effector functions of the immunoglobulin molecule. 
So when you start looking at this, and again, we're sequencing and we're sequencing and we're looking at proteins, right, these antibody molecules from all over the place, and what we're finding is that each molecule is going to be unique, right, at the FAB region of the molecule, but it's going to have that common properties in the FC portion of the molecule. So it's going to be unique out here in the variable region, so basically all immunoglobulin molecules are different, but they still have similarities in the FC portion. So people are starting to sequence things and started looking all over the world. So if we put it all together between the sequencing studies and the enzyme studies and the biological activity studies, right, now we're starting to get a clearer picture of what these immunoglobulin molecules are doing and what the makeup of these immunoglobulin molecules are. So if we look at this FAB portion of the antibody molecule, and again, Right? I just want to go back, well, now nah, I'm going to go back to this picture, right? FAB portion, right up here, the variable region of both the light chain and the heavy chain, right, where they both come together with each other. It's looking for, or it's able to detect a certain three-dimensional struct, uh, three structure. So if this is the epitope, right, we're just basically looking here at this short polypeptide. Maybe we have three or four amino acids in this picture. And here's another one over here. So you can see, right, basically the, the FAB fragment is right here, but we have both parts of the heavy chain and parts of the light chain up here in the variable region being able to recognize and bind to that part of the antigen, the epitope of the antigen. Okay? And that's what we're looking for, and that's what we start to need to know. So if we're looking now at all this activity, if we're looking at all these sort of biological assays that we're doing, and if we start looking in greater detail at the sequence information, Right? The first thing that you, that's drawn to, your eye is drawn to over here is right? all the differences that are taking place over here. Because right? clearly every single immunoglobulin molecule, every single antibody molecule is going to be different. But then you start looking over here and you're thinking to yourself, oh, well, right? if I'm looking at this one, right? I'm looking at this one, what other one did I draw? I'm looking at this one, right? And then you start, so I'm, now I'm looking at this one, and now I can start looking at this one. You can start to see inside the sequences of the constant region that we have a bunch of similarities taking place over here, right? That this constant region looks a whole lot like this one, a whole lot like this one, and if we do enough of these sequences, and again, we're sequencing hundreds and hundreds of these molecules, we can start to find that we can base the differences of these immunoglobulin molecules into different classes. And if we sequence more and more and we get more and more information, we're finally going to see that we have five classes of immunoglobulin molecules based on the heavy chain. Right? Remember, we've already talked about the light chain. There's only two types of light chains, kappa and lambda. So you really can't base a classification of all these differences of all these differences in the antibody molecules, right, just on kappa or lambda, because how are you going to, if this one is kappa and this one is lambda, how are you going to classify that one, right, or any of the other ones? So the classification is due to the similarities of the heavy chains, right? So if we do enough information, 
If we start looking at enough sequences, we're going to start to need to have a nomenclature now right, to put these categories into these subcategories. Right? And at the end of the day, we have five classes of immunoglobulin molecules. Right? Again, we're going to use Greek nomenclature based on the heavy chains. We're going to have a gamma heavy chain, a mu, an alpha, a delta, or an epsilon. Right? And gamma is IgG, mu is M, so it's IgM, alpha is A, so it's IgA, IgD, and IgE. Right? So we can find five different immunoglobulin classes. If we keep looking even more, right, and we're sequencing even more, and we're getting even more data, we can now start to subclassify certain, certain, yes, yeah, certain of these immunoglobulin heavy chain classes. So the IgG can be subclassified into gamma 1, gamma 2, gamma 3, or gamma 4, right? What it means is that if we're looking at all of these different sequences, and let's say, right, let's turn all these into IgGs now, right? So we got to do this. So we got to do this, right? So now these are all IgGs, and then let's say we have this and this, and then we have one of these, and we have one of these, and we have a, you know, a difference there. We can now start to subclassify all the IgGs. Right? So we can go to gamma 1, gamma 2, 3, and gamma 4. And from an evolutionary point of view, it's making sense because we can see those same subclasses in the mice or similar subclasses in the, in the mouse. Right? Only we have a gamma 1, which is similar to the human gamma 1, 2A, 2B, which is similar to 2, and then a gamma 3. Right? And similarly, if we start to look at all the IgA sequences, we can get an, an alpha-1 and an alpha-2 subclass. Right? So all these different types of heavy chains that we're sequencing and, and that we're looking at. Again, when it comes to the light chains, right, we're sequencing light chains and we're getting information about light chains, two classes of light chains, right, kappa and lambda, and in the mouse, Almost every single immunoglobulin molecule is going to have a kappa light chain, right? Almost 95% of all immunoglobulin molecules in the mouse contain a kappa light chain, only 5% lambda. And if you look at that same sort of pattern, although it's not as drastic in, in humans, right, it's about two-thirds of them are going to be kappa. It brings some interesting evolutionary sort of conundrum, I guess. Right? Was lambda the first one, and then there was some sort of duplication, I mean, was, sorry, was kappa the first one, and then there was some sort of duplication that now lambda became a, another class of a light chain, right? And it sort of came in with the same sort of, of relevance in terms of kappa as the major one, right? Why do we have a kappa? Why do we have a lambda? People still haven't don't have a real good idea for why that is, is, uh, is happening now. But clearly, kappa is, is, is the predominant one. Right? So, most of the immunoglobulin molecules you're going to see in a mouse is go, are going to contain one of these heavy chains and probably a kappa light chain. Right? And that's going to be the antibody molecule. So the other thing we can do is we can use differences in the antibody molecule by the different antibodies that get raised against the antibody molecule. All right, good. Did I confuse you totally? 
Absolutely. So, what am I saying we're going to do? What we're going to do now is we're going to take antibody molecules and we're going to inject them right into that same poor rabbit that we've been using. So now we're going to take those immunoglobulin molecules and we're going to inject them into the rabbit. And that rabbit's now going to make antibody molecules to that antibody molecule that we just injected into the rabbit. Right? So let's take a step back further. Right? The antibody molecule we're going to use as, as the as the molecule we're going to inject into the rabbit, forget that it's an antibody molecule. Forget it. Just another protein molecule. Just a protein that's 150,000 molecular weight with a little bit of carbohydrate on it. We're going to inject that in, and we're going to see what antibodies are going to be formed against this protein that we're injecting in, right? So let's say we take hemoglobin from a mouse and we take hemoglobin from a cow and we inject it into a, a rabbit. Are there going to be differences in the antibody responses between that cow hemoglobin and that, oh, what was the other hemoglobin, and, and, and that human hemoglobin? Absolutely, because those two proteins are different. So the antibodies that are raised against those proteins are going to be different. And that's all we're doing here. Antibodies can be used as antigens as well. So if we do this experiment, right, we're going to look for common epitopes, we're going to look for different epitopes, right? The first thing we're going to do, or the first type of antibody response we're going to find, are antibodies that describe the constant region of the heavy or the light chain. Differences, let's say, between an IgG and an IgM. Right? We're absolutely going to see those differences. But again, right, let's start looking at some pictures here. So, the first type, we're going to see differences between IgG and IgM, let's say. Right? So, this is going to be a kappa light chain, probably. So, all the antibodies are going to be similar when we're looking at the light chains. Right? So, we can get rid of all of them. It doesn't matter. But, there are going to be differences here. Well, now I've got to go back to differences between IgGs and IgMs, but you get the idea, right? So there are going to be differences in the heavy chain molecules. So here's a whole bunch of different antibodies that are recognizing these epitopes, and now we have a whole new crop of antibodies over here that are recognizing these epitopes. So this will show us, this will help us discern the difference between the heavy chain. So these are the isotypic determinants. Trust me, when you go home and study and you, you go through this, you've got to go through it a couple of times. Right? Allotypic differences, they're going to be determinants of one allele of the immunoglobulin gene, right? depending on what allele is selected. So here we have the same immunoglobulin molecule, right? an IgG1. We're getting very specific in terms of the subclass. Only this is from strain A mouse and this is from a strain B mouse. So we're going to get some differences in terms of, right, we're going to get some similarities, but we're also going to get some differences in terms of the alleles that are chosen. So we have isotypic differences, allotypic differences, and then we have what are called idiotypic differences. And those idiotypic differences are going to be coming around from what's happening right here, 
right? Every epitope here is going to be different on every immunoglobulin molecule because all these amino acids are different on all these different immunoglobulin molecules, right? So this is the unique antigenic determinants on the FAB portion of the immunoglobulin molecule, right? So, right, in here, right, this variable region of this mouse IgG1, right, against antigen A, against a certain antigen, same immunoglobulin, same subclass, right, only against a different antigen. So these are the differences here in the idiotope, in the idiotypic differences up in terms of the variable region. Again, we're just looking for any way that we can get new information about these immunoglobulin molecules. We're just looking for any difference that we can find, and we're going to use every biochemical and molecular biological reason. We'll talk about right, the molecular biological things after the first test, right, when we come back to look at immunoglobulin molecules in detail again. All right? So we have all these sort of differences. But it's like an infomercial. Wait, there's more, right? Because now, as we're sequencing more and more, and we're looking at more and more things, we can start to see even more differences. Because right? now what we're doing is now we're starting to look at the fine sequence information over here in the variable region. Okay? And that's what we can find next. We can find diversity in the variable region. And it's concentrated in what are called the complementary determining regions, or the CDRs. They're also right, called variability spots, or hot spots, or hypervariable regions. If these are the variable regions, then there are regions in here that are really, really variable. Right? But we're not going to call them the really, really variable agent. We're going to call them the hypervariable regions. Right? So if we look at this sort of display, and again, this is variability on this axis, and it goes anywhere from zero to, right, it's never, ever the same. Right? This 100% would be it's never the same. This is 150, it's never, ever the same. And if we go down in terms of the position on these areas, right, from the first amino acids, we're just going down the line here. And it doesn't matter if we're looking at the heavy chain or the light chain, we're definitely looking in the variable region, and what do we find? We find that these sort of normal variable regions, right, along here, yes, they're absolutely variable all the time, right? So if this is 50%, that's 25%, that's 12%, right? So they're variable 10% of it. Let's say, that, let's get this line out here at 10%. But as you go along, you can start to see now that these amino acid, right, residues in here are hypervariable, right? These are different 100% of the time. These are different 150%, right? It means that these are really, really variable. And we can see the same thing in the light chain. Right? So we have hypervariable regions in between these other variable regions. So now, right, we need a new nomenclature, right? That's why it's getting, that's why immunology gets a little messy, right? Because as we get more and more. So now we need a new nomenclature. So now we want to discern these regions from these regions, 
right? So these regions are now going to be called the framework regions. So what does this sort of tell us? What this tells us is, let's go back, what this tells us is that it's really the CDRs that bind the antigen. Right? What I've been saying right, up until this point is, right, if this is sort of the, if that's the epitope that we need to look at, and we have our heavy chain, we have our light chain, right, they're sort of held together down here with the disulfide bonds. So this comes along, and it sort of recognizes that three-dimensional structure right there, and it's going to be able to bind to it. Now what we're saying, as we're looking at more and more and more information now, that we're not looking at all those amino acids that make up the variable region or the edge of the FAB region. Now we're only looking at three regions. So now, if I'm going to come in and recognize this epitope, this is really what's recognizing the epitope of these CDR regions. So the framework regions are just sort of there Right, those less variable framework regions, they're just sort of there as its name would imply, right, these framework regions are basically just there, right, to support the CDRs. So these three CDRs, there's one, two, three of them in the heavy chain, there's one, two, three in the light chain. So instead of doing this, Right, now, I, now I'm, well, I don't have enough fingers to sort of make it even, right? But now I'm sort of doing this, right? One CDR, one CDR, one CDR, the other one, the other one, the other one, and that's what's making, right? So all these differences are going to allow that antibody molecule to bind specifically to this three-dimensional shape, to this epitope, to this antigenic determinant. So that's basically what's going on with all of these things here. So, whoops. So we can now refine our picture, right? Before, our picture was, where was our, sorry, I don't want to get, a, get everybody seasick. That was our picture before. We just have sort of this glob of amino acids in here binding to this epitope. Now our picture is, Right now our picture is here, right? Here's a CDR region, here's a CDR region, here's another CDR region, here's another CDR, here's another, right? It's these regions that are basically up and in there, and that's when the epitope is recognized, it's these CDR regions that are binding. If you look at this sort of diagram in here, right? Well, you might be able, not be able to see, but here's a CDR region over here, a CDR region in here, and here in this sort of space filling, you can see the pocket. Again, right, we're going to form that same pocket from here to, to here, right, for those three CDRs to be able to be out there, and it's the CDRs that are going to be binding to the epitope. Right? Again, we just keep sequencing and sequencing and sequencing, and we keep looking and we're looking and we're looking, we now know, right, that those idiotypic differences, right, the idiotype are changes in that hypervariable region. Right, remember we talked about the idiotypes. Right, so these antibodies are absolutely binding out here, but they're binding to the changes in the CDRs. Right, because it's those CDRs that are going to be more uh, recognized by those antibody molecules, right? So that's what the idiotype is all about. 
The other thing that we're going to start to find, the other thing we're going to look at, the other thing we're going to be able to start to see, yike, I'm going to have to go back, is this common domain structure. Right. So, so as not to get anybody a headache, right, let's go back to this one. Okay. What we're going to start to see in here are these common areas. Right? And you can see them in here. And you can see them right in here and in here. Right? We have these disulfide bonds that are in there. And these disulfide bonds are intramolecular disulfide bonds. Right? They're not intermolecular, right? An interstate highway goes in between states. So these are the inter, right, molecular ones because they're holding a light chain to a heavy chain. But these intra, right, inside the protein structure in these areas, right, these are those other common, right, parts of the protein that you can see. And if we look at those, what this is, or what these are, are, where are we? We're going to go back here. Right? What these are is that they are loops of about 60 amino acids. There are four of them in the heavy chain and two of them in the light chain. And it's shared by all the immunoglobulin molecules. And these are going to be a common domain structure of all antibody molecules. And as it turns out, we'll see as we keep talking about, bless you, as we talk about molecules of the immune system, that these common domain structures, right, are all part of, Im of immune molecules, and they're called, right, or they're given this, this inclusive name of the immunoglobulin supergene family. Because if we look, right, if we look over here, this immunoglobulin fold, right, it's called the immunoglobulin fold, so there's a cysteine and there's a cysteine, right, held together by this disulfide bond, and there's about 60 amino acids, and here's 60 amino acids, two disulfide bonds, and here's another one, and here's another one, and here's another one, right? So this is called, right, the immunoglobulin fold, and it's the first representative of the immunoglobulin supergene family, but there's all sorts of different proteins that are characterized with these immunoglobulin folds, right? So here are more immune molecules, right? So lots of these molecules on the surface of immune cells to be able to signal back and forth. And in terms of how important these immunoglobulin folds are, right? We got a bunch of adhesion molecules. There are a bunch of of uh, neuronal proteins that are involved. So this immunoglobulin fold Forever the reason how it does it, it seems to be very important for right, cell-cell communication, intracellular communication. Right? Nerve cells need to communicate with each other. Immune cells need to communicate with each other. How and, well, well clearly we may never know the how, but why right, this can participate. Right? So this is probably the, the basal, right, the most common of these 
substructures. Here's just one of these immunoglobulin folds in this type of a protein, right? How this immunoglobulin fold is involved with cell-cell communication is one of the great mysteries of protein structures, right? We got lots and lots and lots of proteins that have this, right, this substructure composed in the protein structure itself and what it has to do with cell signaling and cell-cell communication and Right, an interaction back and forth, we don't have a clue. Well, probably have a clue, but right, we don't really know why. Right, this is one of, the, one of the great mysteries of the immune system, among others. So, we're sequencing and we're sequencing, right? We keep sequencing. And the next thing we find, what we find now is the hinge region, right? A place called the hinge region. It's located between amino acids 261 and 231, right? Trust me, I'm never going to ask you that on a, on a test, <laughs> right? Is amino acid 232 part of the hinge region? I guess if I really wanted to, I could, but no, I promise I won't ask that question. So, right, the hinge region, it's rich as it turns out, right? We're doing more sequencing, we're doing more sequencing. Right, and now we're basically sequencing, right? We're getting more information about this area, right? This demarcation point between the variable region and the constant region, right? It's rich in proline and cysteine, right? A lot of proline and a lot of cysteine in there. It needs to, whoa, it need, oh, I want to turn back to this, whoa, yeah, we can use that one. Sorry, pardon me. Wait a minute. Oh, come on. There. Right? Here's the hinge region. We got a lot of proline. We got a lot of cysteine. Right? We need the cysteine so we can have these disulfide bonds together. Right? So they can look and be part of that position right there. So the other thing you come to find out is that when papain attacks, or when pepsin attacks, papain attacks above the hinge region. Right? So that's why the FC portion stays together and the FAB portions basically float away. But when you look at pepsin, pepsin attacks below the hinge region and that's why these disulfide bonds are still here so that we can get that FAB prime 2 region in terms of right, a, 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 a piece of the immunoglobulin molecule that we can study. Right? So, papain is going to cleave above, so here's the, the two cysteines, the other two cysteines, we've got a bunch of prolines in there, right? And the proline is going to be important for flexibility, right? Proline is one of the amino acids that has a very large, bulky R group. So basically what this is going to do for us is it's going to give us a little bit of movement in here, right? Between now, right, this, this Y of the immunoglobulin and this Y it allow us a little bit of flexibility in there, right? So if we're going to come into contact with a couple of epitopes out here, right, the immunoglobulin molecule can flex a little bit so that we can be, get this binding to this pathogen in this example, right? And that's what the proline is going to be doing for us. It's going to be so bulky in there that it's going to give us a little bit of, of movement at the hinge region. And again, this all is coming from sequencing and sequencing and sequencing, right? We're in the middle of doing this right now, even as we speak. Before, 
we were compared, well, before, let's say 10, 12 years ago, right, we moved away from proteins and we moved into looking at genes. So we're looking at all sorts of different gene sequences, right? And as we're sequencing, right, genes from frogs and birds and people and pigs and squirrels and ducks and everything else, we can start to see similarities and differences in the gene structures. We're way past that now, right? Now we're in the middle of sequencing somebody's genome, somebody else, somebody, somebody else's genome, somebody else's genome, right? And we're in the middle of looking at all of that information right now. And we're still in that sort of foggy area of, well, we really don't have enough genomes to make a, right, to see all differences between people on the planet, to look at sort of diseases, to look at all sorts of different attributes of the different, geno of, of the different genome sequences of individual people. Right? But within the next 10 years or so, Maybe, you know, some people might tell you the next five years, right? If we can get to be able to do gene sequencing rather routinely, and that's the whole idea, right, with doing, genes, with doing genome sequences, you're going to go to the doctor one of these days, or perhaps if it's not you, it's one of your kids, right, and you are going to give that, your doctor a drop of your blood, and he's going to put it into the gene sequencer, and he's going to sequence your genome over the weekend, and he's going to come back, and your doctor, or he or she, sorry, is going to come back and say, gee, do you want to know if you're susceptible to breast cancer? Do you want to know if you're going to be susceptible to different types of cancers? Or you're going to come back and say, yes, we've, re we've read your genome sequence, and the type of lung cancer you have is more specifically suited to, th to this chemotherapeutic regime. Right? That's the goal. Right? It's not quite Star Trek yet. Right? We're not just going to wave a wand over him and cure the person. But if you can start to get that information now from the entire genome sequence, right, that's where we're going. Right? So we're looking sort of, we're looking back in, in time here to see how all of this sequencing of these immunoglobulin molecules led to this information. But we're living through right now, right, at least once a, well, New England Journal of Medicine and Science, right, Science comes out every week, New England Journal comes out every week, at least once a month you have these massive genome sequencing in, uh, projects that are taking place, right, where we're comparing, right, Asian sort of genomes to, to European genomes to African genomes to try to see differences that are taking place, right. People now are in the middle of sequencing every single bacteria that's residing in your gut even as we speak. And people are now coming to find out, right, and we'll talk a little bit about it when we talk about mucosal immunology, people are starting to come to some sort of agreement that, right, even the bacteria that colonize our gut have something to do with the immune response. So that's another whole, so just imagine, right, trying to keep track of every single, well not every individual microbe, but every sort of class of microbe in, in guts, right? And so people feel now that obesity may be different sort of bacterial relationships that are residing in people's guts. And now, right, so now everybody's going to jump on that one. Oh, you want a new diet here? Take this pill. We'll kill this bacteria and you won't have to worry about eating anymore. Well, you'll still have to eat, but you won't have to worry about gaining weight anymore because we will have controlled, right, all those, uh, all those, uh, the microbiota of your gut, right? So this sort of sequencing stuff is going on even today. 
and it's going to lead to great sort of, right, sort of uh, differences in what we're going to be able to see for the immune system. Okay. That's where we should have been on Friday. Let's start Monday. <laughs> Yike. All right, so we know a little bit about what makes a good antigen. We got a pretty good idea of what an immunoglobulin molecule looks out, but we don't really care. Right? To all my colleagues who are biochemists, and you know, we don't really care what the immunoglobulin molecule looks like. Right? As immunologists, we care about what they do, right? about how they participate in the protection of the host. So let's sort of go down memory lane. Well, not memory lane. Let's sort of go down the lane and look at the different classes of immunoglobulin molecules. So we're going to start with IgG. Right? IgG is the second most predominant protein in your blood. Right? Albumin is number one, Ig, or IgG is number two. Again, it's about 150,000 molecular weight, so it keeps the definition of what we've been saying is an immunoglobulin molecule. 80% right? of all immunoglobulin molecules in the blood at any one point in time is IgG. IgG is at about 11 milligrams per ml. Albumin is somewhere in the 20 milligram per ml range. Right? So albumin is number one. IgG is number two. And it's the predominant immunoglobulin in serum at any one point in time. Right? And as we talk about right, immunoglobulin uh, interaction with antigens, when we talk about antigen-antibody interactions, Right? Hopefully, we'll get to that on Wednesday. Right? When we get to that on Wednesday, we'll see why it's the predominant immunoglobulin in the, in, in the blood. Right? We have the, all those different classes that we have to talk about. Right? So we've got gamma 1, gamma 2, gamma 3, gamma 4. So we're looking at the heavy chain. Right? They're all about the right weight, around 50,000. Right? 50,000 for the heavy chain, 25,000 for the light chain. Except gamma 3. Gamma-3 has a much larger hinge region. Right? If you look at different immunoglobulin molecules, right? Gamma-1, Gamma-2, Gamma-4, eh, pretty much the similar, but Gamma-3, right? What was this, some sort of quadruplic quadruplication of the hinge region? Nobody really knows why it's got a higher hinge region, a longer, bigger hinge region, right? But again, Gamma-1 is by far the predominant immunoglobulin uh, in the blood, right? The, the predominant IgG. And then we have lesser amounts from gamma 2, gamma 3, gamma 4. And we can see the same sort of pattern in the mouse, right? Gamma 1 being the most and gamma 3 being the least. Right? Do we really have a good grasp of what a gamma 1 containing IgG molecule can do as opposed to a gamma 2, a gamma 3, or a gamma 4? Kinda, but not really. When we talk about right, the different biological functions of IgG, you'll see that there are going to be some differences. The other thing that we can use IgG for as being the stereotypical immunoglobulin molecule is we can see that it's going to be very stable. Right? And for the history of researching antibody molecules, this was very important. Right? So, 
IgG is going to stay being IgG at this long, long, long range of pH optima. You can, IgG will stay together as IgG. It won't, de it won't be degraded in solutions that are changing from very acidic to very basic, from pH 2 to pH 11. It can take a temperature up to as high as 70 degrees Celsius before it starts to degrade and break apart. Right? It can stay uh, relatively intact in eight molar urea, right? a very high sort of amount of urea for denaturation of proteins. If we want to separate other proteins from IgG, the other proteins will degrade. IgG will stay functional in terms of eight molar urea. Right? So, immunoglobulin molecule is going to be all okay. And this is due to those disulfide bonds. Right? Those disulfide bonds, right, you've probably heard them described as rivets of protein structure. They're very stable. It takes a lot to disrupt these intra and intermolecular uh, uh, interactions of different disulfide bonds on or in the protein itself. So what this means is, right, that early investigators Let's say you isolated some IgG and the phone rang. You had to go talk to your mom. Oh, I left, uh, I left, um, I left it on the, on the laboratory desk. Big deal, right? The desk is pH 7. Well, not the desk itself, but your solution was pH 7, right? Unless you're working in an oven, right? The temperature of your laboratory is probably 22 degrees. So let it stay there for a while. Or it's Friday, you're really excited about being the weekend, it's going to be a nice weekend, right? You accidentally leave your immunoglobulin, your IgG solution on the desktop over the weekend. Big deal, right? 22 degrees centigrade, right? Immunoglobulin molecules are very, very stable. You can put them in the freezer and you can freeze them and you take them out and thaw them and use them and put them back in the freezer. You can probably keep them in the refrigerator for months and months and months and they don't degrade at all. So it's very fortuitous that right, these immunoglobulin molecules were this stable because it allowed a whole bunch of different manipulations to take place and you didn't have to worry so much about the, about the protein breaking up or degrading. All right, so what's so good about IgG? Well, IgG has a lot of right, effector functions. One of its major things, it's going to be able to fix complement via the classical pathway. So you're thinking, oh, what the heck does that mean? And you're right. Well, maybe it will mean, I don't want to I don't want to say that you don't know what this means, right? Some of you may know what it means, but don't worry about this. We'll talk about this, right? The complement is another blood protein that's involved with recognition and destruction of pathogens, right? So these complement proteins and these immunoglobulin proteins can cooperate in destroying pathogens. And there's a bunch of different pathways in the complement system, a bunch of different ways that these complement proteins can recognize and destroy invaders, right? And IgG and the immunoglobulin molecule is going to be very important to them. Right? And again, we can start to see right, a little bit of difference here, right? So gamma-1 and gamma-3 subclasses are better at fixing complement than any of the other subclasses. So we get a little bit of information here and there about the differences, the biological functions of these immunoglobulin subclasses.
but really we don't know that much about it at all. The other important thing about IgG is it's the only immunoglobulin that can cross the placenta. So maternal IgG is going to cross the placenta and help the developing fetus, to protect the developing fetus, right? As that fetus is maturing and it basically gets to the point where, right, it's going to leave the maternal body, that IgG is going to circulate, right, in the baby for several months and still give protection to the baby. So IgG is very important in, right, protecting developing young. The other thing about IgG is they have a whole bunch of different receptors on the surface of cells, right? So this, right, FC receptor now, right, on, sitting on this cell, maybe it's a macrophage, right? This FC receptor, right, on phagocytic cells is capable of recognizing IgG1 and IgG3 with very high affinity, right? So this FC receptor, right, and from now on that's what we're calling them FC receptors, and the FC receptor basically means, right, the antibody or the immunoglobulin receptor. We're just talking about this FC portion of it because that's where this receptor is going to be able to recognize that immunoglobulin molecule, right, that antibody molecule. So on phagocytic cells, and then the other thing, another class of white blood cell, the neutrophil, the polymorphonucleoleukocyte, right? It can't bind monomeric IgG. It can only bind to immune complexes. So here's a monomeric, right, a single IgG molecule. The other thing that can happen, right, and I promise this will only take a minute, so let's say we have a whole bunch of antigens that are in the blood at any one point in time, right? And now we get antibodies binding in here, right? So we're going to get what's called this immune complex. So we get this big gamish of immunoglobulin molecule and antigen and it's floating around the bloodstream, right? We've got to somehow get rid of that. Yes, it can make its way to the kidney. Yes, it's going to diffuse across the membrane and make its way out in the urine. But if we have too much of this, it might start to clog the kidney. So now these neutrophils, not these BMNs, these PMNs, right, are going to be able to recognize only these things, right? If anybody looked, the, the quiz is online as of this morning. If you're so inclined, please do. See you Wednesday.